0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, we're going to jump back into Psalm 18 this morning. Uh, Trey uh, began us in this psalm last week. He did a great job sort of setting up the, the context for this psalm, and, uh, and I'm going to pick up where he left off this week, which I'm really excited about. That, that was not a plan. Trey and I didn't get together and, and plot that we were going to preach Psalm 18 together. When we were deciding what the schedule would be, uh, I, I, told, I, I said to Jazz, I said, I think I'll do Psalm 18, and at the same moment, Trey said, I think I'll do Psalm 18, and so we happened to pick out of all 150 psalms, Psalm 18. Psalm 18. And so Trey and I uh, had a great time talking over this psalm with one another, and, and I'm eager to pick it back up uh, this morning about halfway through. But here's the deal. I want you to do something a little different this morning. You need a buddy for this, okay? Because we're going to be in Psalm 18 and also Second Samuel 22. So whoever you're sitting next to, decide which of you is going to open to Psalm 18 and which of you is going to open to Second Samuel 22. And you'll start to see why here in a moment. And so if I, if I sort of pull out here and to, to remind us about our big picture, we're continuing our study this morning of the Psalms, as is our custom during the summer months. These are the, are the prayers and songs of God's people over the centuries, and we look to them even now for a look at who God is and what He's like and how He interacts with His people. All of the Psalms reveal an intimate, prayerful connection between David or the other various authors and God, which ultimately were compiled into a songbook for God's people. Now this one is unique in that we have a, we have a pretty good idea of, of what the context was for this prayer, because it says so. And, uh, and we can see it in that context outside of the Psalms. So this is David's private prayer to God, turned to public praise and worship. So in a sense, this is part of David's story of grace, the way that God intervened and directed and saved his life in powerful ways are written in these words, which we benefit from learning and studying together even now, because everything David says about God in these words is still true about him today. He's the same God. And so I have a question for you to ponder today as we walk through this. What is your story of grace? Now, you might see that question and not have a clue what that means. That's okay. You might look at that question and not know exactly how to approach it. You might look at that question and know exactly what that means because you've experienced this kind of grace from God, the way the Lord has intervened and directed and saved you. If the Lord has transformed your heart and life, how how do you tell people about it? God's grace is too good to keep private. And so if you're here this morning and you're not sure if God has changed your heart or your life, and and maybe you doubt that's even possible, or if you don't really know about God or you've been away for a while, stick around and we'll let this book guide us. We'll let this book enlighten us even today. So let's take a look at Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22, we'll begin, I'm going to read the heading in in Psalm 18 and then jump to verse 30, I think it's verse 31 in 2 Samuel 22, it says this, the Lord is my rock and my fortress to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, and jump to verse 30, "'This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless.'" He made my feet like like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed." They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. And may we see Jesus in him only. Amen. David's private, intimate reflective prayer to the Lord in 2 Samuel became a public testimony of praise and worship for the people of God in Psalm 18. That is what the Psalms, this one and all the rest, have been for God's people for generations upon generations. These hymns and songs, as one theologian put it, are performative acts that can alter one's relationship with God in a way that just listening does not. The Psalms provide one opportunity to participate in the redemptive story of God, to participate in the true things about God, and to experience the reality of who God is and who we are. Think of the Psalms this way, when we gather to worship on a Sunday morning, what would it be like if somebody came up on stage and just read the lyrics to the song? Something would fundamentally change if we did it that way because we would no longer be participating in the act of worship. We would be simply spectating or or observing something. The words of the songs would still be true, of course, if we did it that way, but we would be missing out on something that God has for us in corporate worship. The act of worshiping with one another, just like the Psalms were intended to be used in worship, can alter our relationship with God in a way that listening does not. So I want you to know this because our study in the Psalms during the summer is not meant at all to be taking a break. Okay? We're not taking a break during the summer months. Jesus has something powerful for us in these texts. These are indeed the songs of Jesus. Tim Keller's book of that same name, The Songs of Jesus, describes them this way. He says the Psalms model commitment to God through pledges and promises. Dependence on God, through petition and expressions of acceptance. To seek comfort in God, through lament and complaint. To find mercy from God, through confession and repentance. To gain new wisdom and perspective from God, through meditation, remembrance, and reflection. They help us to see God and who He actually is. There is incredible power in the Psalms. There's incredible benefit to begin to know and sing these words in our minds for all those reasons. I was intrigued by the fact that, that this Psalm shows up almost identically in 2 Samuel, and I almost chose 2 Samuel 22 as the main text instead because the story in First and 2 Samuel is incredible. You should read it this week. I'm serious. If you're you're here this morning and you've been saying this week, man, I wish I was in the Word more. I just don't even know where to begin. Consider this the invitation of the Holy Spirit to read 1 and 2 Samuel. It's an incredible story. Those two books in the Old Testament were written as one epic story which appeared on two really big scrolls. It's the only reason why they're separated into two books. 1 Samuel begins with the birth of Samuel by Hannah. And she commemorates the occasion with this beautiful poem about how God exalts the humble and opposes the proud. This poem in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel masterfully sets up the backdrop of the narrative that follows, and the reader can't help but return to her warning as they learn about the weaknesses and frailty, all sort of masked by, by pride and arrogance, of the three main characters in these books, Samuel, Saul and David. You you, uh, may remember a couple years ago walking through the book of Judges together and you may remember that Samuel is the last judge of Israel and the first of the prophets since Moses. And so when the judges were no more, the Israelites wanted a king to lead them and God told Samuel to give them what they wanted so Samuel appointed Saul. Now Saul was everything you would think a good king would be. He He was... handsome and and tall and had all the outward characteristics of what you'd think a good king would be. And you'd look at him and say, yes, there's a king. And he had success at the beginning part of his reign. But soon he turned arrogant and proud. Precisely the kind of person that God opposes And Saul began to blatantly disobey God and act on his own. So meanwhile, God began to raise up another king named David, who at that time was the opposite of Saul. He was a lowly and humble shepherd boy. No one would have expected a king like this, much less a king who would establish a dynasty. And right there, a gospel seed is planted in this story. Where else have we learned about a king coming from humble origins than one day establishing an eternal dynasty? King Jesus. And so we begin to see that right here in 2 Samuel. So God would go on to equip David and orchestrate his steps to be the leader of Israel. David spent time in Saul's army with much success. He was winning the hearts and favor of all the people. Well, Saul did not like this very much, and he was very... Envious of all of this. So he began going mad. I mean, he was mad with jealousy. He started to devise ways to kill David. None of those were successful, and eventually Saul is killed, and David becomes king. The unimpressive, unknown shepherd boy becomes king, and what's more, the prophet Nathan tells David that it will be through his line, albeit a broken and sinful one, That God's kingdom will be established and revealed. I love this moment. This is so divinely choreographed because the last time I was up here preaching to you, it was in Matthew chapter 1 where Matthew goes through that whole uh, lineage, that whole family tree of Jesus. And do you remember that? In the middle of that genealogy in Matthew 1, Matthew spends a whole lot of time on this moment. This moment in redemptive history when David became the king of Israel. So this moment in Second Samuel 7 is is—it's just a bombshell of a gospel seed and a magnificent display of God's covenant promise to his people. If God says it, he's going to do it. He says it in 2 Samuel, and then he does it. God is going to establish the kingdom of God on earth through David's line, and this kingdom will last forever. David could not have known at that time that God, through the prophet Nathan, was speaking of the eventual virgin birth of Jesus Christ. You know what's so great? We have the opportunity to know that being on this side of redemptive history. We get to look back and know that this promise was fulfilled. We get to see the truth of Hannah's poem, that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. So 1 and 2 Samuel will follow this chronological narrative that's really compelling to read. And I, and I encourage you if, you, if you dig into first and 2 Samuel this week, there are so many resources available now online that will help you sort of understand what's happening in that narrative so, you can, so that you can see what God is doing in those books. I encourage you to do that. But at the end of that narrative, in chapters 21 through 24 of 2 Samuel, The author uses a a different kind of of literary device, so it's no longer in chronological order. It's it's a chiasm of sorts, and it follows this outline that's, that's coming up on the screen. Where chapter 21 is split into two parts, and that's A and B. Chapters 22 and 23 are the C's, and chapter 24, in, in two parts is B and A. So each part sort of corresponds back to the other part. And the middle of that chiasm, the C in this diagram, is meant to be something for us to pay attention to. It's meant to say, hey, this is important. You should pay attention to this. And those, la- those two chapters in 2 Samuel are the last words of King David. So everything he's got to say before he dies. And this, David's song of deliverance. This is a reflective look back that we're supposed to pay attention to. That David wrote at some point in his life, looking at all the moments when God clearly equipped and readied him to be successful in battle against a multitude of armies and against Saul. God was faithful in his covenant promise to David through it all. So look at verse 30 again. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. The Lord proves himself true over and over again. His way is perfect, and yet we have seasons of doubt, don't we? David did too. So if you were to jot down an area of your life where you do not believe that the word of the Lord proves true or that his way is perfect, what would it be? What area of your life do you believe falls outside of this promise. You can tell God about that. When David doubted, he told God about it, and, and David recalled the promises of God. And so let me ask you this. If you were to reflect on your life, as David is doing here, are you able to see moments where, you, where what you disbelieve about God now contradict what you have experienced or know about God from the past? And what is it that makes you think God's faithfulness, which has endured from the beginning, would change now? If you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I am so glad you're here. Because I want you, too, to think about this question. By some means, I don't know, but whether it be an invitation from someone or you just happen to see we gather here on a Sunday morning. Maybe you've been away from a while and, and... You've been away for a while and you're finding your way back. I want you to pay attention to the fact that you're here. I want to invite you to consider that it's not an accident that you're here this morning. To consider that this moment right now might be a moment you reflect on later in life and say that God met you here. That God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, moved in your heart this morning. And you too might say, like David, the word of the Lord proves true. For some of you, I know, trusting God's faithfulness is harder. Maybe you're in the midst of suffering right now. Maybe you're in the the midst of pleading with the Lord. And and maybe you've been doing that for a long time and beginning to doubt that He even hears you. Maybe you're beginning to lose hope. And I hope this text encourages you that the Lord accomplishes His purposes. His Word proves true. Look back to verse 3 in Psalm 18. David says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. In verse 6 he says it again, in my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. When the Lord promised to deliver his people, when he heard the prayers of his people, he meant it and he did it. David prayed and trusted in God's faithfulness. As I was reading this and studying this, uh, I was suddenly reminded about my mom. I'm very blessed to have a mom who faithfully prays for her children. I know this because she tells us a lot. Um, But I also see the journals that she keeps. And I was talking to her a few weeks ago, and she she showed me some journals she's been keeping for each of her children and said she wanted me to know about them because she wants my older brothers and me to have them after she's gone. Thankfully, my mom's in good health, but the thing that struck me about this conversation is that my mom, thanks be to God, has been faithfully lifting petitions up to the Lord her whole life. I want to imitate this. Some of those prayers I know she may not see the answer to in this life, but the Lord promises to fulfill his purposes. And so whether it's here or whether it's in the next life, we can have hope. These prayers from my mom are going to be like psalms to me. They're going to spur me on toward Christ. And I'm so grateful that she's written them down. God hears us. God knows what we need. So keep on praying, as 1 Thessalonians 5.17 instructs. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And God knows what we need when we need it. Verses 32 through 36 describe that at just the right time, God equipped David to handle the circumstances in which he found himself. David says God equipped him with strength made his way blameless, made his feet like a deer, set him on secure heights, trained his hands, gave gave him a shield of salvation, gave him his right hand and his gentleness. I love that word, gentleness, in the midst of all of those other words. Do you find yourself in the middle of something right now where a year ago, maybe you would would say, there's no way you could handle it. Have you had a moment like that, where where God just supplies what we need at the time we need it? God's faithfulness is not dependent upon your strength. God did not promise to be faithful to you only if you feel like he will. God says you can know he will be. It says it in 1 John 4, verses 15 to 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So maybe for you this morning, you do know and believe. The Lord has given you confidence and joy in your salvation. Well, you've got to tell somebody. Tell someone about this God who isn't out there and and up there, distant from his people, but but the God who's here right now, even now, with us and for us. But how do we do that in a way that's helpful and God-honoring and not self-serving or boastful? God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, as we know. So take a look at this next section of the text. This is verses 37 to 42. Something changes here. And as I was studying this passage, I admit I became a little uncomfortable here. In fact, it was that very discomfort that I eventually realized was an answer to God's prayer as I was praying, God, what do you want me to see in this passage? What do you you think I need to talk about here? I kept coming back to this section because I was so uncomfortable by it. Do you notice all the I statements here? Verse 37, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I thrust them through. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I kept reading that, and I was like, God, David, you're kind of going off the rails here with some boastfulness, man. And I was like, David, what's your deal? It made me a little uncomfortable. So what are we supposed to make of this section where David seems to do this? And so I finally arrived at the question, did David do this or did God do it? Some of you might remember the Christian artist uh, Chris Rice. He's, mitten, he's written a lot of God honoring songs that I really like. And I saw him in concert when I was a teenager. And I remember that when the concert was over, it was a great concert. And so the audience was just, we were clapping wildly for Chris Rice. It was very enthusiastic. And I don't remember whether or not he acknowledged that. I don't remember. I don't think he bowed. I think he finished the last song, and he, and he walked off stage. And we were clapping for a long time. And we were just like, yeah, if we keep clapping, Chris is going to come back out and play another song. So we just kept on going. And Chris Rice did not come back out. Okay, so it it just turned into this sort of awkward moment where everybody sort of realized like all this enthusiasm was not going to pay off And so we just sort of dissipated and everybody just started leaving, you know And so it was such an interesting moment at the end of this concert that we really enjoyed It was very edifying very entertaining and we really liked it and uh, and then this moment happened And so it made for a great conversation on the way home So did Chris rice do that or did God do that? And it it occurred to us that maybe it was both. You know, God equipped Chris Rice to have this talent and maybe Chris's objective was to, was to leave stage and let the applause go to God. Maybe that was Chris Rice's objective, to, to dethrone Chris and all of his talents and help us remember who God is and that God equipped him. But he didn't really come out and, and prepare us for that. He didn't say, hey, thank you so much. I know you're, you're excited, but I want you to direct all this praise and adoration to God, who's the author of all of this. So we were just kind of left wondering. Now, I don't really know whether chris made a good choice or not i don't know if our musings about it were right or wrong but what does seem clear is that david in this passage is not so much puffing himself up or taking credit he clearly gives credit where credit is due before and after this section but he does rejoice in the fact that he was the one out there doing the work of the lord and i bet he felt great i bet he felt great as he was defeating army after army after army He says it in verse 43, just one example. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. This must have been exhilarating to be at the heart of God's divine purpose and will. Sometimes we, as C.S. Lewis characterizes in his book, Letters to Malcolm, profanely assume that divine and human action exclude one another like the actions of two fellow creatures, so that God did this and I did this cannot be both true of the same act except in the sense that each contributed a share. So think of it this way. You are preparing to take a test, okay? You've prayed that you will do well on the test and you study very hard. You take the test and you ace the test. Okay? And at the end of it, you get your test score back, you aced it, and you say, I really prepared for that test. I was very prepared. I think 70% of that success is mine, and 30% of that success is God. That's what this is talking about. That The, the success, or, or whatever we're, we're talking about, is somehow divided among, among our participation in it and God's influence. Well, David has a different answer, I think. If he came in here right now and we said, "Hey David, who fought and won all those battles?" David would confidently say, "I did." 100%. I fought and won those battles. And at the same time, point us to verses 46 and 48, 46 through 48 and say, "God answered my prayers. He promised to deliver me, provided all that I needed, and he rescued me and exalted me." 100%. They're both they're both true. God's answered prayers can be seen in the action of his people. When you pray for courage, you ought to expect moments to come when you will need to exercise courage. When we pray for patience, we we ought to expect trying moments to come when we'll need to exercise patience. When we pray that people will hear the gospel, you ought to expect opportunities to arise when you'll need to tell somebody about it. And when God answers prayer in our acting, we ought to make a big deal about it. David demonstrated a way to do it that's both truthful in his participation in it and humble in his acknowledgement of God as the author of it. So is David boasting? I don't think so. I think think this idea plays out in a couple of, of sinful ways for us. The first is prideful arrogance or self-reliance. The other way is self-deprecation or a false humility that's still a self-serving activity. We see the negative effects of boasting and selfish pride in, in Saul and 1 Samuel. He began to trust himself more than God and remained unrepentant about it until his death. And we see it in David too. He made a terribly selfish and destructive decision out of pride and arrogance when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. David lamented his decision and humbled himself before God in confession, but he and his family and his kingdom bore the consequences of that decision. When your heart has a posture of boastfulness or pride, there's no room in it to receive anything. Saul could not receive anything from the Lord because he was too full of himself and his own ambitions. David, through humility, opened his heart up to the healing hands of the Lord. So you may be a person who thrives on affirmation and acknowledgement. Maybe you love to be recognized for the things you do and make it a point to share it with others in a way that that sort of puffs you up. Maybe you can't be wrong about anything or, or, or receive loving critique. If that's you, what would happen if you didn't have those accomplishments? What would happen if you admitted you were wrong about something? Maybe you really believe that your value and worth are wrapped up in what you do, in what you know, that if you fail to perform, you will be worthless and rejected. If that's you, take heart. Your accomplishments and achievements are not impressive to God. He is not impressed with you for those reasons. He does not love you because you achieve or because you know everything, or because you have the right answer. He loves you because you are His. Your achievement is that Jesus achieved everything for you, and now you don't have to earn any favor from the Lord. You have it completely. Now you are free to do your work and achieve and accomplish, to know and understand things, but you're also free not to know things sometimes. You're free to listen to others. You're free to receive because God has given you all you need for his purpose and glory. It's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with God in and through you. Now, on the other side of this, and this one might be, I don't know, this one might be a little trickier. What if David didn't say anything? What if he didn't say anything about his involvement in the battle? What if he was so afraid of boasting of what people might think of how he would come across that he minimized it. He minimized the whole thing and, was, and, and said something like, yeah, it wasn't that, the, ba- the battle wasn't that hard. The, I mean, the, it, there wasn't that many people, and I, didn't, I wasn't feeling good that day anyway, so I, I just wasn't at my best. And sword, the sword I had was just a knockoff from somewhere. And <laughs> man, that, that downplaying, do you recognize that? Maybe you shy away from ever saying anything about what God has done because you're afraid it will come off as boasting. You're afraid of what people might think, or you're afraid of saying it incorrectly. Or in the same way, an outright boastful person fears being found out. You're terrified of the notion that people know the reality of your sin and frailty, and you try to mask it in these ways. You're not off the hook. That's false humility. That's pride in a different form where you're still engaging in a a self-serving activity. It's something that still points to you more than anything else. Do you see how if David were to completely eliminate God from this story, or if he completely downplayed his participation in the story, it would minimize not only the actions of David and his participation in it, but the action of God on David's behalf. It totally deflates the magnitude and power and abundance of provision God provided for David and that God provides for you and me. Now, you know who did not have a problem with this? The Apostle Paul. He was quick to admit his shortcoming. Look at this. In 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost... This guy was aware of his weakness and frailty and sin. But then he goes on. Listen to this contrast. This is an amazing contrast offered to us in Christ and articulated by Paul. He was quick to discuss his sin, but also unafraid to invite other people to imitate him. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What would you think if if someone said that to you? What would you think if someone came up to you and said, Hey, I think you should imitate me. I bet, I bet that's not happened to anybody. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. There are men and women sitting in this room that I want to imitate. They have not come up to me and said, Hey, Joe, I think you should imitate me. But I have seen the fruit of the Spirit in them. I have heard the stories of grace, how God has transformed their life. And I want that. I'll follow that. I have a pastor friend who I've just learned so much from him, and he used to say all the time, I'm just a beggar who found bread, showing other beggars where I found it. I love that. So if I came up to you and I said, I want to follow you, and your initial reaction to that is, yeah, you should follow me because I'm awesome. (laughs) Consider this the Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder to check your pride. By the way, you might need to ask someone who loves you to tell you the truth about this in regard to how they experience you. Is there someone who would tell you the truth if they see any prideful tendencies in you? If you do not have anyone in your life that could be honest and tell you the truth about that, this is your first clue that pride might be a sin pattern in your life that Jesus is waiting to free you from. On the other hand, if I, if I came up to you and I said, I want to follow you, and if your first reaction to that is, no way, do you, no way do you want to follow me. If you only knew who I really was, you wouldn't want to follow me. Consider this, the Holy Spirit tapping on your shoulder to show you all that God has done for you through Jesus, such that you can have joy and confidence in boasting about him, who you really are is a rescued and redeemed child of God. And maybe you just don't know that yet. But that's who you are. So if you fall into one or the other category of of pride or false humility, take heart. The free gift of grace of God is poured over you through Jesus. And because of that, you're free to tell others what God has done in your life without fear of rejection or disapproval from them because you have all the approval and acceptance you'll ever need in Christ. You and I can't change hearts, our own or others. It's not something that we can do. But not to make a big deal about how God does work is to minimize the fact that he does. He answers prayer and a lot of the time he uses his people to do it. That's why Paul invites people to imitate him because he's imitating Christ and all Christ had done for him. I want to imitate Paul because I'm learning to imitate Christ. What I want you to see is that both the answer to prayer and the action through prayer require God's supernatural help. Both demonstrate his power and both call for celebration. David did it. God did it. Now, I don't know how David felt looking out on the battlefield at the odds against him. They were vast. Have you ever been standing before the proverbial battlefield? Looking out there and wondering how in the world you're going to overcome? Facing something that looks just totally insurmountable. But David trusted in God's word, trusting that God would equip him with all he needed, and he moved into the battle. We can completely trust God's word in every single area of our lives. The gospel applies to every single area. You can trust him, he is faithful. And that fact ought to spur us on in worship. Listen to this, Psalm 126. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. When they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. When was the last time you laughed? I mean mean the kind of laughter that's like the ugly kind. Like the ugly, like snot, snorting, you know, red in the face kind of laughter. If you can remember that, and for some of you, I know, you you can't. For some of you, I know that's been a while. But when that has happened, what has been true about the circumstances? What needs to be true about the environment for you to really experience a true belly laugh? I bet you need to be with people who know and love you, and you need to feel free Now, I know for some of you, you don't feel that way right now, and you haven't for a long time. I want to remind you that in God's family through Christ, you're fully known, you're fully loved, you're fully free. God knows right now that you don't feel that way, and He won't leave you there. He loves you too much. And listen, there is going to be a day when we hear the beautiful sound of laughter from all of God's redeemed. I can't wait to hear that. So now we've arrived at verse 49, nearing the end of this psalm. And, and this verse has particular significance because it, what, it's what makes this psalm a, a messianic one. Meaning that there's a little gospel seed here pointing to the better king who's coming. Paul quotes it in Romans 15, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, and this should sound familiar, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. David was planting a seed here, that there would come a greater king who would establish a kingdom not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. When David says that he will praise the Lord among the nations, he means with the nations. That the promises of God will extend beyond the Israelites and is a, a foreshadow of Jesus' command and Matthew to make disciples of all nations... It's a small glimpse of a future king who will come and bring salvation to his people. It's a seed that points to the fulfilled promise from 2 Samuel 7 that from David's line, a better king than David will come to rescue God's people and seal God's steadfast love on them. And this king will surprise everyone because he will be humble and lowly and God will exalt him high above every name. David didn't know it, but many generations later, Jesus would come to be among his people. He would show us the way to the Father by imitating him. He would suffer every trial and every temptation like David suffered and you and I suffer and remain sinless, devoted to the Father, and then die the death we deserved on the cross so that the barrier of sin would be there no more. And we could have full access and acceptance into the family of God. This is a big deal. This is something to boast about. Aren't you glad this story was written down? I hope you've seen that what David wrote as a private prayer to the Lord in 2 Samuel became a public profession of faith and worship for Christians throughout the centuries that spurred generations of the faithful on toward Christ, and we're invited to do the same. One of the things that people who are a part of our church and who are pursuing membership complete as part of that process, is writing their story of grace. It's a story that illustrates from the individual what God has done in their lives, how he's rescued and redeemed them, and what life is like now that they're in Christ. In many ways, these stories are modern-day psalms. They spur me on in in following Christ. If you've ever been in this building to witness a baptism, you've heard at least a portion of a story of grace. What I take from this psalm and the corresponding poem in 2 Samuel is that our stories of grace ought to be shared. There's power in knowing what the Lord has done. This book tells us all about God's story his redemptive plan, his his relentless pursuit of his people, how our faith and relationship to God get worked out in community, and how the gospel frees us to do the things God calls us to do. God did it so you can receive that. You can receive that grace and then do the work God has put before you in that order. By his power, we can share our stories in a way that's not boastful or laced with false humility, but in a way that is truthful about God and the way he works with and through his people, which always makes God the hero, not you or me. Our stories of heart transformation make visible that his word proves true. David was not afraid to write this down. Praise be to God for directing David's hand and head and heart to write it down, to tell us who God is and what He's like in every circumstance. In every circumstance, in thanksgiving and praise, in sadness and grief and anger and joy and exuberance and despair and all the ways we, too, experience life, God was ever-present with David. He's the same God now. He's ever-present with us. He's the same God As verse 50 says, who brings about salvation for his people and steadfast love to his anointed, to David, and to his offspring forever. You are invited into God's story. He has written you in it. He has a song of deliverance with your name on it. Will you accept his invitation and be a part of his story? Will you give up authorship of your life so that the perfect author can write for you a story that ends with you face to face with a God who will look at you not with disappointment or disapproval, but with joy and acceptance and laughter and kindness as his son or daughter. Through Jesus, that promise is yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is true. That through Jesus, you have broken down every barrier, every wall that's in the way between us and God. You have broken down so that we have full access to him. And that God doesn't look at us with with disapproval or with anger or disappointment because of what what you've done Through Jesus, Jesus presents us now as holy and blameless, and we can trust that. When we pray and we see our answers to prayer through our actions, we can rejoice and worship because you answer us. You bend low to hear us. Whatever the reason is that you delight in hearing from your children, we praise you and we thank you for that because it's true. Thank you for allowing us to have this participation in our redemption participation in our salvation. Thank you for drawing us to that. And now let us worship you with full hearts and full voices because of what you have done. Amen.